CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. We had early indications of product market fit. The story of Sprig is for the first two years, the business kind of grew like wild, you know, wildfire. And we had really strong indication of product market fit. And then over the next two years, that fit started to loosen and two things changed. And if you think about the term product market fit, there's two variables here. There's your product and there's the market. And both of these things just started to move in different directions. You just heard Niraj talk about how important product market fit is, not only in the early days, but throughout the life cycle of a startup. Niraj previously co-founded Sprig, the on-demand food delivery startup that quickly raised $60 million from top-tier investors before winding it down. Niraj currently runs a VC fund specialized on food tech and has invested in a number of unicorns and some unicorns. In this episode, we'll deep dive into what went wrong with Sprig, learn about how a founder should always be on the lookout for the evolution of its product market fit, and discuss the future of food. This episode is very insightful to learn about how the changing dynamics in a vibrant market can quickly turn things for a startup, even in later stages. Hey Niraj, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Thanks for being here. How's life in Berlin? Um, life is getting a lot better. I feel like summer just started last week. The weather's getting good. People are out and you know the mood of the country and the mood of the city is on the rise. So, so things are looking up. Great to hear that. Are you going to be there throughout the summer or are you going to go somewhere south like the Mediterranean, France, Spain, Italy, whatever? <laughs> yeah, that is a great question. Everybody I know here is going to Mallorca or Lisbon or something like that. I, I haven't made any plans yet. I'll probably do a little bit of traveling later, but uh, but right now I'm happy to be here. And so, so nothing planned right now. If the COVID situation gets better here in Turkey, you should come to Turkey. Turkey is pretty nice as well for summer. Absolutely. That is one of the top places on my list. And I would love to visit you in Istanbul whenever you're back. I'm looking forward to it. In this discussion, I want to talk about future of food, your investments, etc. But before we go into all that, let's start off with Sprig. You started Sprig in 2013, and it was the first and the largest vertically integrated on-demand food delivery startup. And you raised $59 million from top-tier investors like Greylock, Social Capital, Accel, and Battery. Let's go back to the initial days of Sprig first. What convinced you that there was a strong product market fit in the early years? Great question. So first, I'll, I'll rewind the clocks a bit. So 2013, for context, was a period that looked very different than it looks now. Uber had just launched, I think, a year or two prior. There was still a black car service. And the idea of using your phone, pressing a button, and poof, magic happens, was still a fairly novel concept and hadn't really extended to a lot of other verticals. So this kind of like idea that your phone is going to be a central source of solving a lot of your core problems was still relatively new. At the same same time, I was finding that as an entrepreneur myself, as someone who had very intensive jobs, I was kind of constantly facing a choice between choosing food that was convenient and could solve my just like hunger issues versus health. And I looked at my peer group and, and saw that a lot of people were faced with the same dilemma. And they were kind of like constantly choosing food that was fast and easy rather than what was good for them. And so I kind of like merged these two concepts together and birth Sprig. And Sprig from the early days was designed to be the easiest way to eat a healthy meal. And we our premise was that if we could make it 10 times more convenient, 10 times more affordable and provide higher quality food, then people would habitually start to improve their diets and 
you know, habituate kind of healthy food into their diets. And, you know, that was the very premise of it. So it was a lot from my core problems and talking to a lot of people. And we had this basic hypothesis for the business, and then we went out to validate it. And so what we were able to do in the first three weeks of having this core idea was validate the idea and get to a level of confidence. And the way we did this is we deconstructed the problem and started to look at what the core hypotheses were. And for us, there were two core hypotheses. One was that people wanted healthy food delivered quickly. And then two was that we would be able to deliver healthy food quickly. And so the way we did this is we had no money. We had no engineers. It was myself and a co-founder. We had no employees. We had no resources, but we were like, how do we validate this idea? And, and the way we did it is first we were like, okay, what do we need? We need customers. So we emailed all of our contacts in San Francisco, where we were living at the time, and said, hey, next Wednesday, we're going to be delivering healthy food quickly for dinner. If you don't have plans, just be on the lookout. I'll follow up with more information. The second thing we needed was we needed food. And so we went on Craigslist and we put a posting up for a chef and said, we want a hundred meals. It'll be 50 of a chicken dish and 50 of a veggie dish. And, you know, we'll pay you in advance, but produce these hundred meals for us. And we found a lot of really great chefs and, and we ended up getting George Lucas's, who is uh, the producer, you know, the creator of Star Wars. We got his personal chef who applied. And so we had an excellent chef on board. Then we needed a way of delivering. And we, again, we had no engineers, no tech. And so we went on Eventbrite. And instead of, you know, spending a lot of time resources building a website, we opened an Eventbrite page. And Eventbrite is usually used for selling tickets to an event. But instead of selling tickets to an event, we made it so you could either buy a chicken dish or a veggie dish. And in 20 minutes, we had a working website that not only allowed us to showcase our menu, but also allowed us to transact. And then lastly, we needed a delivery fleet. And so I asked to borrow my mom's minivan and got a couple of friends. And boom, we had like a few delivery drivers who, you know, we weren't going to pay because they were doing us a favor. And that Wednesday night, we emailed all of our friends and said, hey, we have a chicken dish and a veggie dish. We sent out the link and we said it'll be there in 15 minutes. And people started to order and we sold out in less than an hour. And people loved the service and they loved the experience. And then boom, we were like, okay, we're on to something. We have just with no money in a matter of two weeks with no employees validated the entire experience and people loved it. They wanted it again. And we did it again the next week and sold out again really quickly. And then at that point, we felt very confident in our hypothesis. Great. I mean, it's not a tech business from the start. When you initially start, when you have 100, 200, even a couple thousand customers, it's not a tech business. It's easier to manage all these orders and do the deliveries, etc. So it's easy to jumpstart. But then as you scale, technology becomes vital, I guess, for the business. But how do you go from preparing the food yourself and delivering it to yourself to raising $59 million from top tier VCs? What were they asking from a technology and scalability perspective? What were some of their question marks? It's a great question. And the reality is that actually, I would say the goalpost started to move a little bit over those, you know, we ran from 2013 to 2017. And in the beginning, it was, again, it was fresh off of Uber and this idea of growing at all costs, buying markets, really reaching liquidity and density in a market. That was what investors were, were mostly looking for. So in the beginning, what we needed to show was that there was viral growth opportunity here. And what was great about the business is that we had such a strong indication of product market fit in the beginning, in the first couple of years, that we spent zero dollars in marketing and were growing at 20% week over week and you know could barely keep up with our supply. And that was because we were delivering a product that was higher quality food and it was faster and it was more affordable than anything else you could get on the market. And so the, really the business just took off. And so we kind of like eased into our seed round, which was a couple million. And then Greylock led our Series A maybe a year after that. 
And we were barely able to kind of keep up with our demand. Over the next couple of years, there was kind of a, a swing back in the pendulum. And investors started to think a lot more about unit economics, unit profitability, and making sure that growth was sustainable and scalable. We started to invest a lot more into technology across our vertically integrated stack. So both in technology that allowed us to cook and prepare meals more efficiently and cost-effectively. And that's everything from supply chain technology to making sure that like we were purchasing ingredients at the right prices. Obviously, a lot of demand gen forecasting. So we weren't buying ingredients or cooking meals that we weren't going to be able to sell. And that technology flowed all the way to our last mile logistics. And we actually built probably the most efficient last mile delivery infrastructure that, that existed at the time. We were much more efficient than a lot of our peers and a lot of kind of like last mile delivery businesses. And with that, we were able to show that we had a path to unit profitability. Social capital led our Series B and our Series B was about 45 million. What was interesting is that in a lot of ways, our corporate strategy at the time, you know, is, is a little bit influenced by what people who are funding businesses are looking for. And so our strategy actually evolved pretty significantly over the course of those four years because of the funding markets. I feel like $59 million back in the day is almost like $500 million today. <laughs> and um, Yeah, it's true. You tried to do everything yourself. I mean, when you unbundle your core tech that you were trying to develop, which was demand generation, demand prediction, route optimization, last mile logistics, etc., all of these now warrant standalone software companies that would only target these particular problems in the food value chain. And you scaled the business to more than a thousand employees. You served more than two million meals over three years, but then decided to wind it down. What wasn't working out and what were some of the initial signs there? I would say a few things changed. So we had early indications of product market fit. The story of Sprig is for the first two years, the business kind of grew like wild, you know, wildfire. And we had really strong indication of product market fit. And then over the next two years, that fit started to loosen. And two things changed. And if you think about the term product market fit, there's two variables here. There's your product and there's the market. And both of these things just started to move in different directions. So one, as I mentioned, our strategy moved from kind of a top line, grow at all costs strategy to one that was much more interested in unit profitability and making sure that we were driving core profitability over the business. And in order to do that, we had to change a few things in our value proposition. So one, our menu variety started to narrow a bit. We were no longer able to have kind of like major loss leaders on the menu, like premium steak. And so the types of dishes that we were serving started to narrow a bit. And our delivery times went from 15 minutes to 20 minutes to 23 minutes. And, you know, these are all kind of like marginal changes, but in aggregate, they start to change your value proposition a bit. And then secondly, what I think is even more importantly, is the market moved pretty dramatically. Uber Eats launched probably in 2016. DoorDash started to pick up steam. Postmates started to pick up steam. And a bunch of delivery aggregators that were offering meals from any restaurant in the city started to pop up. And when we started Sprig, we were vertically integrated because we thought that was the only way to deliver a really high quality product. Because at the time, the restaurants that were doing a lot of delivery were pizza or, you know, kind of greasy Chinese food or greasy Indian food or things like that. There wasn't a lot of like really high quality healthy food. But over these years, as restaurants saw more and more percent of their revenue come from delivery, they started to invest more in, into that revenue stream. More restaurants started to offer delivery. And so the types of meals you could get from these other services that were not vertically integrated, but were rather just delivering from restaurants 
started to get better. And so our edge on, and you know, we were vertically integrated, so we had a more narrow menu. So we thought that people would care more about food quality. And what we found is that actually for long-term retention, people cared more about food variety and menu variety and getting what they want when they wanted it. And so all of these like small things started to like inch into our product market fit and started to kind of flatten our growth trajectory. And so in 2017, a year after we had raised our Series B, we were looking at the business and realized that we did not need to be as fast. And in fact, having more menu variety would be one of the ways that we could really improve our metrics. And so we kind of had a decision at that point, whether to pursue a sale of the business or to pivot. And we decided to pivot. We went through a fairly big layoff and rebuilt the operations from the ground up so that we could optimize for more venue variety. And we did that for about a year. And what we found is that even after doing that, we still didn't have enough variety. We were still competing with the entire variety of a city. And it was just wasn't the value proposition that I thought would be the long-term winner in the space. So we had about two years of runway left at the end of 2017. We had many millions left, but I was looking at the business and I was like, I don't think that this is going to be the long-term winner in the space. I don't want to spend two years burning our team out, spending all of the money and really kind of just running this to the bitter end when I have a lot of conviction that this is not the right strategy. So my co-founder and I decided to shut the business down proactively. We returned the money that we had to our investors. We spent a couple of months finding jobs for all of our employees so we can make sure that our shareholders were taken care of. We can make sure that our employees were taken care of. And, and uh, we decided to yeah shut the business down. Tough decision. But your story really resonates with me because I feel like whenever you find product market fit is when you start losing it. So product market is something that you find and you lose and you try to find it again and you find it again. And if you find it multiple times <laughs> across multiple years, you become a huge company. But if I mean, if you only find it once, then you start losing it after a certain time because of the market, because of the competition. Yeah, I think it's a great point. It, it is a lot of people think it is like a milestone you hit once and then boom, you don't have to worry about it again. And the key learning I had is that you need to be focused, dead focused on product market fit day in and day out. And because again, your value proposition changes over time and the market is continually changing. It's, it's organic, it's living. And so your product market fit by kind of definition will constantly change over time. And so you need to be focused on that. And that needs to be the center of your focus at all times. Definitely. And you've been in the entrepreneurial scene since 2012. How did your focus change over time and what made you particularly bullish on the future of food? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. One, I think food ha- is one of the ways to impact humanity in the most positive, you know, the most number of people in the biggest way. And so I think the impact potential within the food world is massive. So that's one. But two, it also needs to change. Our current food system is very broken. And if you extend our current trajectories, we are not going to have enough food to feed our population in a number of years. And, and then when you layer on climate change on top of that, all of these kind of like deadlines start to become a lot more near term. So it's one of the areas that I think we can impact the most people. It's one of the areas that I think we need to massively change. And then personally, for me, I've always grown up loving the, the food system, you know, loving food generally. And so I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of working in it. And yeah, I think it's one of the most rewarding areas and most impactful areas to work. 
And there are a lot of different verticals that are going to become huge within food. I know that you're an investor in Gorillas as well. And funny enough, other two Turkish-led companies, Getir and Dija, seem to be leading the space in Europe together with Gorillas. What do you think about the recent grocery craze in the VC world? Do you think there's going to be a $100 billion business from this space over the next five years? Yeah, I think I think grocery is is one of the most interesting spaces today. And when you just look at the fundamentals of how large of a market grocery generally is, how little of the market is digital. And even during COVID, I speak in the US. So in the US during COVID, at the height of, you know, kind of a behavior shift where people started to move towards delivery into digital, online grocery sales is still only 10% of the US grocery market. And I think if you look at Europe, it's even less. And You start to think about what is the future of grocery? How are people going to interact with grocery? How are they going to get their groceries? And, and what kinds of services are going to exist in not in two years, not in five years, but in 10, 20 years? I think it's very easy to see how the size of like digital grocery is going to grow by hundreds of billions and maybe even more than that over the next decade or two. And so it's an area that I just think is incredibly exciting. And, and there's a lot of parts of the grocery industry that feel incredibly antiquated and are, will change. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of attention, a lot of money kind of pouring into fast grocery, like gorillas, like Deja, like, like Gatir, as you mentioned. I think there certainly will be winners in this space. I think like experience of kind of flipping our conception of cooking and grocery and planning and grocery on its head where you no longer need to order your groceries in advance on a weekly basis, but you can literally order your groceries for a meal while you cook and have it in time and, and be able to prepare your meal, I think is a pretty incredible experience. And if you extend that even outside of grocery and you start to think about what that logistics layer, how that can impact other parts of your life, you know, I think it's pretty powerful. So I think, yeah, this is one space that I think is really, really interesting. Uh, but I think even more broadly, just the macro trend of digitizing the grocery space, both from a consumer perspective, but also grocery stores themselves, digitizing their operations, a tremendous amount of agriculture and produce is lost. The world loses 40% of its produce is wasted before it's consumed. And, and so I think there's a lot of ways in which technology can come in and improve this system, make a cleaner food system that has less waste, that has a better experience and, and you know, really helps us evolve a fairly antiquated part of the food system. I think this space overall, with all the companies that we've mentioned, is the single biggest threat for Amazon. That's why I feel there is going to be a couple of businesses that are going to be worth more than a hundred billion dollar business over the next five to ten years. But we'll see. When you say food, by the way, I immediately think of supply chain, waste and surplus. In fact, we have a portfolio company, Whole Surplus, that created a B2B food surplus management marketplace and acts as a one-stop waste management platform, enabling secondary sales, upcycling, and donations for B2B and B2C. This is another trillion-dollar market that lacks any efficiency or automation whatsoever. And I know that you invested into Farmstead and Buffalo Market with similar value propositions. What's their model like, and do you see many companies emerge in this space? Yeah, so these two companies are a little bit different. So Farmstead is, they are building, you know, a more modern grocer. So they are taking kind of like the full uh, SKU count and inventory count of grocery stores and taking and bringing that online and building from the ground up a technology-enabled grocer that leverages things like machine learning, demand forecasting, it has a digitized supply chain, and has they're fully digital, uh, meaning they don't have grocery stores that you can walk into. Everything is built for delivery. And what they've shown is that by fully vertically integrating and digitizing all of their operations, they are able to reduce their food waste below 5%. 
when a traditional grocer operates at around 15%, you know, and sometimes even higher. And so if you think about, yeah, the capability, the potential of uh, saving 10% of the food flows through their supply chain, it's a pretty material impact. And, you know, Buffalo Market is kind of doing uh, the same type of thing. They started as also a consumer-facing digital grocer, but now they're moving more into digitizing the wholesale experience and, and being a supplier for grocery stores. So all kinds of grocery stores. And so, yeah, I mean, they're able to have a very similar type of impact. So I think these are two incredibly exciting opportunities. And, you know, certainly the one that you mentioned, going a little bit more closer to the customer and figuring out where food surpluses, where food shortages exist and doing some sort of matching and making sure that food doesn't get thrown away. I think there's a huge opportunity there that's super impactful and, and I'm excited to see businesses in this space grow as well. I'll send you their deck uh, right after this. <laughs> yes, please do. You've also invested into different restaurant management software companies like Galley Solutions, Virtual Kitchen, Taste, and Satis AI. I feel like the SaaS vertical is undercapitalized and inefficiencies are still all over the place. That's why we also invested into a restaurant automation software and a cloud kitchen company. I feel like this will turn into a category like retail software with a number of decacorns, but there aren't any yet, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly fragmented. Most restaurants still operate on pen and paper. When they have to figure out how many onions they have, they have to go back into their storage and count them. And what we found, and Galley Solutions is a really interesting story. It's built by Benji Koltai, who actually built our backend system at Sprig. So he was the lead engineer at Sprig who built a lot of our backend kind of kitchen technology. And after we shut it down, he saw the opportunity to take that similar approach and bringing it to the entire food system. In some ways, he rebuilt what we built at Sprig, and he's made it significantly more advanced and better. And what we found is that by tying three different parts of the food value chain together for a restaurant, you can drive a tremendous amount of efficiencies. And that it sounds simple. What restaurants don't have and what he's building is tying together menu development, purchasing, and inventory management. So when you're designing a menu, figuring out and you're forecasting your sales, figuring out how much of a specific ingredient you need, tying that with purchasing, and then tying that with your inventory management so you know at all times how much is in your system. These three parts of the value chain are not tied together and they're not integrated and they're not automated. And if you would put these together, you can automate a lot of the back end of, of a restaurant, save, drive a tremendous amount of efficiency, reduce waste, and, and make restaurants operate like software businesses that, that have a lot more margin. So I think that's a, a pretty exciting opportunity. The, our portfolio company, Fine Dine, started from automating the menu experience, providing digital menus. And then from that, they've grown to more than 1,000 customers worldwide. And now they're trying to productize vertically, putting layers like payments, supply chain, demand forecasting, prediction, campaigns and marketing, etc. I'll send you their deck as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> This is turning into a very productive conversation. Exactly. <laughs> and you invested into Orbelian Bio, a cell-cultured meat company led by another Turkish co-founder. How do you think that space will evolve? I think the best approach is to invest into multiple companies within the category, almost like an index fund for guaranteed multiples in the space. <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree. And I think the alternative protein space It's hyper competitive. It's going to be revolutionary. So, you know, the first wave were a lot of plant-based protein companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible, and they've really led the way for showing that we can change people's dining behavior. We can change our concept of what types of dishes are served. And, you know, I think the plant-based market, I think generally will have see tremendous growth just as it has. 
But I think the real game changer is going to come when we are able to layer in cell-based meat as well, which is effectively animal meat without the animals. And, you know, I think that is going to be really powerful because it has a lot of same overlapping impacts of the plant-based meat, which is it is better for the environment. You're removing animal cruelty, you're removing kind of diseases and growth hormones and all of these other things that we shouldn't be eating, but you're able to actually serve people. A lot of people are not going to turn fully vegan probably, and you're going to be able to give them meat that that they can have without a lot of the, the perils of the current meat system. So I agree with you. I think that this is definitely not going to be a space that sees one winner. There's a lot of businesses in this space that are doing really important work. And I think investing you know, in the space generally is a good bet. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. And before we close, what's next for Niraj? Do you think you'll go back to building or will you continue as an investor, perhaps raise a fund around the thesis? Yeah, so I actually have raised a fund and, and a lot of these investments I'm making are from an venture capital fund that, that I've raised about nine months ago, which is generally focused on technology that can globally impact and improve the broader food system. And over the nine, last nine months, I've made about 16 investments in the space. A lot of the ones that, that you're mentioning are coming from the fund. And so I have found that for myself, one of the most satisfying and scalable ways for me to leverage my skill set and my domain expertise is to find excellent founders, help them, fund them, and work with them to build their businesses. Will I eventually go back and operate? I think probably yes. And I would love to figure out a way to do both of these kind of concurrently. But right now, I'm focused on investments. Uh, and if any of your listeners are working on a technology that they think can materially impact the world, I would love to speak with them. But it's been a really fun transition into investing. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's, uh, life's pretty good on this side of the table as well. Great to hear all that. Well, I'll send you the pitch decks as well from our portfolio company. Um, and thanks for joining the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Niraj's insight with his experience at Sprig is very valuable and I'm sure a lot of his portfolio founders are greatly benefiting from it. He's very bullish on the digital transformation and disruption around food. I'll make sure to send him some deals in this space and I'd love to co-invest with him. If you're a food tech entrepreneur, I'd be more than happy to connect you with him. Feel free to shoot me an email. Until next time. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube.